Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to A History of Europe Key Battles podcast. This is part four on the First World War, where I look at the Austrian annexation of Bosnia in 1908. At the beginning of the 20th century, the dual monarchy of Austria-Hungary, at least on a map, looked pretty impressive. In today's terms, it stretched from southern Poland down to the north of Serbia and included the Czech Republic, Slovakia, Austria, Hungary, the southwestern corner of Ukraine, Slovenia, Croatia and Bosnia and a large piece of Romania, namely Transylvania. It had a population of more than 50 million, a strong agricultural sector, resources from iron to timber, growing industries, a rapidly expanding railway network, and a peacetime army of nearly 40,000, as well as a modern navy. The Austrian economy was growing rapidly, even in the relative backwaters, helped by a customs union with Germany. And German firms invested in new industries, such as electric machinery and automobiles. The monarchy's great capital cities of Vienna and Budapest, and the smaller cities too, such as Prague and Zagreb, were being modernised with tramways, electricity and beautifully decorated public buildings. The most advanced region, technologically and commercially, was Bohemia, with a high concentration of modern industry, such as the Skoda works, which produced some of the best guns in Europe. Vienna also had modern industry on its outskirts, including the Daimler works. And Budapest was establishing itself as a banking centre for much of Eastern Europe. It was also a period of great cultural and intellectual blossoming in Vienna. Sigmund Freund was founding modern psychoanalysis, while another of its citizens, Ludwig Wittgenstein, was one of the most influential philosophers of the time. At the same time, a number of artists were trying to make sense of a world which was rapidly changing. 
The city's great musical tradition continued as Gustav Mahler wrote several works still popular today, but the compositions of Arnold Schoenberg were more groundbreaking. He revolutionised modern classical music with his explorations into atonal and dissonant composition. The art of Gustav Klimt and the younger painters inspired by him challenged the accepted wisdom that art should be realistic and is today highly prized. At the same time, Adolf Loos developed new modern styles of architecture and also the Austrian School of Economics was having a big influence on liberal economic thought. Austria-Hungary also faced a number of difficult challenges. Its government debt was climbing, military spending was the lowest of any of the great powers, and there was an increasing number of peasant strikes and protests. In some ways, the ways of politics were similar to elsewhere in Europe. Old landed classes hoping to hang on to power and influence, liberals demanding greater freedoms, and socialist movements wanting reform, or in some cases, revolution. But it was the question of nationalities that dwarfed all other problems in the monarchy. In an age of rising nationalism and belief in the principle of self-determination, the empire was always bound to face enormous pressures. The Ausgleich Agreement, reached with Hungary in 1867 to form a dual monarchy, provided much-needed stability in the short term, but over time created a number of problems, particularly how to balance the rights of the various national groups. In one way or another, nationalism affected every crisis which befell the monarchy in the decades leading up to the First World War, not helped by very contrasting styles of government in Vienna and Budapest. The Austrian half of the monarchy was more progressive and had a parliament elected after 1907 by universal male suffrage. In Hungary, by contrast, the franchise was restricted to about 6% of the population. The Austrian half was responsible for Bohemia, which had a very mixed population of about two-fifths German and three-fifths Czech. The Czechs were profoundly disappointed by the 1876 Ausgleich Agreement, which had formed Austro-Hungary, and they wanted to be recognised as equals. They would have preferred a federal state. One main focus of disagreement between the Czechs and Germans was the issue of language in the administration and in schools. The other was that of equal representation, which was achieved in 1905 as a result of a register of nationalities, assuring a broadly equitable distribution of seats between Czechs and Germans. A similar approach was then adopted in the province of Galicia, where the local Polish and Ruthenian populations were in conflict and regularly clashed over educational and electoral issues. Here, the Poles, far from a suppressed nationality, were themselves the ruling class. The Ruthenians belonged to the same ethnic group as the Ukrainians in Russia, but were separated from them by their adherence to the hybrid Latin-Greek Uniate Church. Another significant national grouping within the Austrian half of the monarchy were the Slovenes, who were spread across several provinces south of Austria, in and around the Julian Alps range of mountains. 
In general, they were loyal to the Habsburg dynasty and favoured autonomy within the empire. The main national group living within the Hungarian half were the Magyars, who, numbering nearly 10 million, constituted 48% of the total population. They dominated their parliament, for example in 1910 occupying 405 seats to the Romanians 5 and Slovaks 3 seats. They also dominated both the business and professional worlds and implemented a strong policy of forced Magyar supremacy. Writes John Mason, this aimed not at the extension or expulsion of non-Magyars but at their assimilation. In other words, if they accepted the Magyar language and culture, they would be treated as equals. Those who attained their Slovak, Romanian, Croatian or Ruthenian identity were fiercely repressed. While in the Austrian half of empire, authorities no longer tried to impose a common German culture, in Hungary the process of Magyarization gathered apace, so that by the early 20th century the two halves stood radically at odds with each other in their internal national policies. Hungary's refusal to change her policy of Magyarization, in spite of protests from Vienna, proved to be a block to general reform of the dual monarchy. Austro-Hungarian budgets had to be approved by both parliaments, and distrust between the two sides led the Hungarians into the habit of slashing or vetoing army bills that would expand or modernise the regular army. The Croats had secured their own agreement with the Hungarians in 1868, an extremely diluted version of the Ausgleich, which was supposed to guarantee the Croats an autonomous administration, as well as control over the education system and courts. In reality, the Hungarians paid little attention to Croat aspirations or rights. They also failed to support Croatian aspirations for the building of a railway network into Dalmatia. The Croats proposed to Vienna the same rights as Hungary, in a kind of trialist as opposed to dualist system, but the Hungarians vetoed any such arrangement. Ultimately, all sides were dissatisfied with the dualist system. The Austrians resented the Hungarians' disproportionate weight in the monarchy, while the Hungarians constantly pushed for more autonomy and resisted any changes that would reduce their own weight. And virtually all other national groups detested the arrangement because it unfairly excluded them. The repeated failure of Franz Josef to stand up to the Hungarians and to protect the minority national groups, including the traditionally Habsburg Lower Croats, against Magyar abuse, was deeply resented. Still, the old whiskered emperor who had been on the throne back in 1848 symbolised authority, legitimacy and the links among the people of the empire in a way that the vast majority of his subjects respected, despite whatever grievances they may have had about the regime. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment. 
you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at UH1.com. That's UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. During his long reign, Emperor Franz Josef suffered a number of personal tragedies. His brother, Maximilian, who became Emperor of Mexico, was executed by a firing squad in Mexico. His wife, Elizabeth, known affectionately as Sisi, was stabbed to death by an Italian anarchist in 1898. Their marriage had produced one son, the Crown Prince Rudolf. He was highly intelligent but emotionally troubled increasingly morose as the years went on. He chafed against his father's stern traditionalism and became excluded from most leadership roles. He seems to have contracted gonorrhea and in 1889 shot one of his various mistresses and then himself. The royal family tried to cover up the scandal and Franz Josef remained stoic at the shocking loss of his only son and successor. But writes Benjamin Curtis in his book on the Habsburgs, quote, The succession of tragedies is one reason why Franz Josef took on an aura of such an impassive drone, working hard on behalf of the monarchy while retreating into an unfeeling aloofness. End quote. The emperor, however, was unable to come up with a solution which satisfied the various nationalities in his empire. The long-running Czech and Magyar crises were particularly disabling, yet both were manageable within the empire. What proved fatal to the monarchy were nationality crises extending beyond its borders, specifically on its southern flank, where lived an assortment of southern Slavs, Serbs, Croats and Slovenes. Since Serbia's independence from the Ottoman Empire, its orders had been close to Vienna. That changed in 1903 when its king, Alexander Oblenovic, was murdered by a strongly nationalist conspiracy within the Serbian army known as the Black Hand. They had the implicit support of many leading figures who objected strongly to the king's close ties with Austria-Hungary. Alexander was also unpopular because he ruled in an authoritarian manner closed newspapers and disregarded election results. Elsewhere in Belgrade, other members of the conspiracy shot dead members of the cabinet, including the Prime Minister. The new king, Peter Georgovich, was much more overtly nationalistic and anti-Habsburg than his predecessor, 
From now on, Serbia remained profoundly hostile to the Habsburg state and aimed to undermine its hold on Bosnia and Herzegovina. Furthermore, Serbia came to be viewed as an alternative power centre for the monarchy's southern Slavs, as Piedmont had been for Italy. There were actually far more South Slavs in the monarchy, 7 million, including 2.1 million Serbs, than there were in Serbia, 2.6. The claims of Serbians over all Southern Slavs grated on the sensibilities of many Croatians, who saw themselves as a separate people. But the intransigence of the Hungarians against giving them their rights and the Austrians' failure to intervene persuaded many Croats of the joint South Slavic cause and that they would be better off outside the empire. Tensions escalated further between Serbia and Austria in late 1905 when the Serbians announced a customs union with Bulgaria. The Hungarians encouraged the government in Vienna to ban live stock imports from Serbia, triggering what became known as the Pig War. They used the pretext of halting the spread of disease as a means for protecting their industry from cheaper Serbian meat. At the same time, Serbia announced its intention of re-equipping its artillery with heavy guns purchased from France. The Austro-Hungarian policy, however, backfired as the Serbians simply found new markets. The foreign minister in Vienna resigned and was replaced by Count Arenthal, who admitted the failure of the policy. Count Arenthal believed in a more active foreign policy in order to reinvigorate the monarchy's status abroad and to decrease its growing dependence on Germany. At home, he argued, an assertion of Habsburg power would also be a rallying point for the monarchy's peoples, strengthening Habsburg loyalty and identity. For this reason, he set about a plan to formally annex Bosnia and Herzegovina, which since 1878 had been administered by Vienna, but still remained under nominal Ottoman suzerainty. Since the Austrians took over the running of Bosnia, they had been extremely energetic in their efforts to develop the province's economy. A railway was built from the Croatian border to Sarajevo at great cost, and they also set about improving the road network. There was a military purpose to these investments, but they were also part of a huge drive for economic improvement. Forestry and coal mining were strongly developed. Other minerals such as copper, chrome and iron ore were also extracted. Iron and steelworks were built and several chemical factories too. The Viennese government also worked hard to develop the province's agriculture. Some of the peasants were resistant to change, and one of the most controversial policies was the encouragement of settlers. The arrival of colonists, the majority Slavs, but also some Germans, was resented by the local population. The triggering for the decision of Count Arenthal to annex Bosnia in 1908 was the Young Turks Revolution, described in the previous podcast, as rumours circulated that the new Ottoman rulers were planning elections throughout the empire, including in Bosnia and Herzegovina, which could be used to bring back the territories under their control. He was keen to resuscitate a ten-year-old understanding with Russia to preserve the status quo, and so attempted to make a deal with the Russian foreign minister, Alexander Izvolsky. 
in return for accepting former Habsburg authority over Bosnia-Herzegovina, hardly a blow to any great power, he claimed, as Austria-Hungary had already ruled the region for three decades. It was agreed that the Russians would receive Habsburg support for their long-held aspiration of greater access to the Turkish Straits, which would allow their warships to pass from the Black Sea to the Mediterranean. The Russians were interested in cooperation, but Vienna announced the annexation on the 5th of October 1908, before consent had been given from the great powers, or before Izvolsky had time to prepare the Russian government. Izvolsky was left empty-handed and humiliated, precipitating his departure as foreign minister. The consequences of the annexation of Bosnia and the clumsy diplomacy around it were disastrous for Austria-Hungary. The Russians saw the annexation as an attack on their Serbian little brothers, and so the attempt at showing up the Austro-Russian detente ended up destroying it. Relations between the Austrian and Russian empires never recovered from this setback, with significant implications for the constellation of alliances entering the First World War. Count Arenthal had assumed that a forceful Austrian policy in the Balkans would deter Russia, intimidate Belgrade and help persuade the seven Slavs within the empire to stop agitating for their own separate kingdom. Instead, just the opposite happened. Amidst a wave of Slav nationalism, the governments of Serbia and Montenegro were furious about the annexation and mobilised their armies. In response, the Habsburg sent forces to its southeastern frontier, resulting in an armed standoff which lasted over the winter and into the following spring. There took place a six-month diplomatic crisis which almost led to general war. Finally, in March 1909, Germany threatened the Russians that it would support Austria-Hungary's right to use force in the Balkans, forcing St. Petersburg to accept the annexation. Antagonism continued, however. The Russians had been publicly humiliated, and Serb nationalists were even more bitter than before. Austria-Hungary's prestige also suffered, for it had only been able to force through the annexation with German intervention, making it appear as a satellite of its more powerful ally. The Serbian press launched daily attacks on the Habsburgs and the Serbian government encouraged the formation of patriotic societies like Narodnaya Odblana, which counted 220 branches in Serbia and Bosnia-Herzegovina. In the year 1909, the Austrian Foreign Ministry brought a lawsuit against 53 Croats, accusing them of treasonous ties to Belgrade. The case collapsed when the evidence presented turned out to be fake, an embarrassing failure for the Austrian government, which only served to ratchet up tensions with their southern Slavic population. Throughout the Balkans, instability continued, with the risk of conflict igniting in a number of places. In 1910, the ruler of Montenegro, Nikola Petrovic, took advantage of Ottoman weakness to declare himself king of his country. Meanwhile, the neighbouring Albanians rose up in a confused but violent rebellion against their Ottoman overlords. They complained of being denied use of their own language and deprived of basic education, even though they too were Muslims. What actually lit the Balkan tinderbox, however, was a series of events which began in North Africa. 
1911, the Sultan of Morocco appealed for French military assistance in putting down a rebellion. The Germans, however, envious of the colonial acquisitions of France and Britain, wanted to exert their own influence in North Africa. Kaiser Wilhelm of Germany sent a gunboat to Morocco's Atlantic port of Agadir in order to force away the French. The British intervened on the French side and forced Germany to accept a French protectorate over Morocco in return for a transfer of territory from the French Congo to the German colony of Cameroon. The Italians had ambitions of their own for a slice of North Africa and took the opportunity to invade Libya, still in the possession of the Ottoman Empire. The Balkan states took advantage of the apparent weakness of the Turkish armed forces by forming an alliance and invading Ottoman territory. Beforehand though, in the next two episodes, I will tell the story of the Italian-Turkish War of 1911 to 1912. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.